This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black Left perspective. I'm Glenn Ford, along with my co-host, Nellie Bailey. Coming up, the last of the Move 9 political prisoners is coming to New York City to celebrate his release from the prison gulag. And two black scholars talk about the books they have their students read and whether the students appreciate or understand them. But first, police violence against black people in Britain looks very much like it does in the United States. Adam Elliott Cooper is a Ph.D. candidate in the Department of Geography at King's College in London. Elliott Cooper's doctoral paper draws upon years of interviews he conducted with leaders of black organizations opposed to police violence. He concluded that women are the heart and soul of the movement. One of the things I noticed doing a lot of organizing around resistance to policing in black communities in Britain was that almost every campaign against a death um, at the hands of the police was led by a woman, um, whether it be a mother or a sister or a, a widow. Almost every single one of these campaigns was, was led by a woman. But no one was really thinking about it, or no one was really saying it. It was, it was just something that was simply there, something considered as fact. I don't know if there is a definitive answer as to why it is that women lead every single one of these campaigns. But I think that taking this into consideration, this gendered nature of resistance, can help us to understand the ways in which gender, as well as race, racism and capitalism, play fundamental roles in policing across Britain and indeed many other parts of the world. So the reason I think gender is so important to understanding racism, I guess it's racism and, and policing, I guess is maybe two or threefold. The first is a lot of the, the criminalization of our youth is around the idea that they come from bad families, come from families that are deviant, that are promiscuous, that are disorderly, that are chaotic. The idea that the black family can't really raise children in the way that the white bourgeois family is able to do. And the idea that the black family is chaotic or deviant or promiscuous is generally laid at the feet of the mother of the family. The idea that the mother, who more often than not is raising a family alone, isn't capable of raising children. They need the firm discipline of the male authority, the male patriarch in the home, in order for the, for the family and the child to be raised appropriately. So already we see these kinds of discourses around the family, not the black family being not capable of raising children and leading to criminality. And what the, many of these women are doing is, they're, they're, I think they're saying two things. The first thing they're saying is that, no, we do have a loving family, actually. And we're articulating our love. We're articulating our commitment to family through our challenging this police violence, through challenging this police racism. This is one thing we're doing. But the other thing that they're doing is they're critiquing and challenging the legitimacy of the state. They're challenging the legitimacy of capitalist racism, which says that the family should be constructed in this very normative, this very nuclear way, right? The idea that the family should just be a mother and a father and children and nothing else. And of course, with black families, as with many families across the global south, 
that isn't how families are constructed. We have vast family networks of aunties and uncles and cousins and, and, and other relations who contribute to the raising of children. And so by challenging the legitimacy of the state, not only do they reassert themselves as mothers, as parents, as, as the loving family members and, and challenge those kinds of stereotypes, what they also do is say this love for our family goes beyond simply our blood relations. It's a love for our community. It's a love for wider society. And it's that love and solidarity which goes beyond simply us campaigning for our child or our, or our loved one who's been killed by the hands of the police, but moves into far greater senses of solidarity that go way beyond the family structure and into communities and wider society as well. And the police believe they are defending imperial British values. Yes, uh, exactly. So the idea of the, the nuclear family, the mother, the father and the child, this ideal family network emerges in Europe in the 18th and 19th centuries. And, is, you know, is emerging across Europe's colonies, including that of the United States and many others during this period. And the reason that it emerges during this time, partly, is because of the emergence of capitalism, right? So rather than uh, feudal systems in which you have large family networks across Europe, all toiling land, working on the land or working on the common land together, you have the emergence of capitalism in which the man goes out and earns a wage and the respectable woman should stay home and raise the children. And any women who were not staying home and raising the children were seen as less respectable. They weren't doing ladylike labour within the domestic sphere. They were going out and, and working. And so this idea of the nuclear family, what we might call the heteronormative nuclear family, emerges alongside the emergence of capitalism. But this perfect bourgeois family that emerges in the 18th and 19th century needs, can't simply define itself on its own. It has to define itself by what it is not. And what it is not is, of course, as I mentioned, the poor families of Europe in which the women and children also have to go out to work. But its antithesis are the families of the colonized world, the families of Africa, of Asia, of Australasia, of the Americas. And it's these families which are seen as particularly chaotic, deviant, promiscuous. And it's through these imperial discourses of respectability and family, which we see shape the legacy of racism today, which continue to shape black, frame black families in this manner. And in this context, the police and lots of white Britain see the entrance of people from the Commonwealth as an alien invasion. They certainly see these people emerging from Britain's former colonies and the, the shores of the motherland as being somewhat of an alien invasion. Britain has this interesting simultaneous amnesia as well as melancholia about empire, as Professor Paul Gilroy writes quite eloquently. And what this means is that whilst Brit British people remain proud of their empire, that they can tell themselves that Britain ruled the waves and brought Christianity and schooling and the railways to all of Africa and Asia and, and the Americas and Australia. What they, of course, forget and they have the amnesia about is, of course, the transatlantic slave trade, the mass genocide, the exploitation, the extraction of resources and the destruction of the environment. All of these types of things are forgotten, of course, by Britain. And so that therefore means that when the people from these colonized nations turn up on the shores of Britain from countries which are, of course, uh, far more underdeveloped than the overdeveloped Europe and, and, or North America, they can't understand why they're there. And they perhaps think that the reason they speak English is because English is just simply the best language on the planet rather than it being for specific historical reasons. And so 
what we begin to see, therefore, is the, are the kind of stereotypes which emerge through the colonial period being reintroduced to Britain as people from Britain's former colonies uh, begin to migrate to Britain in significant numbers in the post-war period. And these kinds of stereotypes I mentioned already, which include stereotypes about their families being deviant and promiscuous and disorderly, are used to explain criminalisation, are used to explain violent border regimes, are used to explain exploitation in the workplaces of Britain and other parts of Europe as well. Well, these stereotypes are quite familiar to black Americans, and Britain's black incarceration rate is roughly comparable to the United States. That's completely correct. Britain had the largest empire in human history, and its its greatest legacy is, is that of the United States, probably its most powerful settler colony. And so it should be unsurprising to us that the kind of racism which shaped the criminal justice system in the United States is not dissimilar to that um, here in Britain. And there's kind of been a back and forth. Whilst many of the racist ideas which shaped empire were brought over to America by the first white settlers in the 16 and 1700s, many of the kind of racist practices which are now being pioneered by the United States are being reintroduced to Britain for police and control and govern its uh, increasingly large black populations. And this, this includes certain kinds of laws and legislations and powers which criminalise black life and working class life more generally, whether that be the criminalisation of, of drugs and, and drug laws, the criminalisation of migration and movement, the criminalisation of people identified as being involved in a gang, whether it be being involved in rap videos or going to the same college or being related to someone who's been convicted of a, a violent offence. All of these types of forms of criminalisation have been in some way or another borrowed from the new imperial leaders of the world in the U.S. It's long been apparent that black women are at the forefront of anti-police activities here on this side of the Atlantic. Do you think it's even more pronounced in Great Britain? I think it would be difficult to say whether it's more pronounced in Great Britain. I don't know enough about the U.S. context, but I think that we should be unsurprised that it is very often the mothers and the female relatives of people who are killed by the police that are leading many of these struggles. And I think part of it, as many of the women I've spoken to in Britain, can engage in it for strategic reasons. So strategically, it's often more powerful and it resonates with a wider audience. If a mother can simply be demanding justice and truth as they're grieving for their child, But I think it also enables these women to be able to, as I mentioned before, critique this idea that the black family is this degenerate, chaotic space and reassert the black family is not simply this place where where oppression and violence can happen, of course, because we still live in a patriarchal society, but can also be a, a space of resistance. And this is something that black feminists like Hazel Carby and many others have been articulating through decades gone by. Now, you analyze this phenomenon in black feminist terms, but you also point out that these female protest leaders are not ideologically identical. Oh, no, completely. I mean, many of the women that I spoke to and have worked with might not necessarily identify themselves with being feminists or black feminists. They might not identify themselves as being prison abolitionists or police abolitionists. They might not necessarily identify themselves as being anti-imperial or anti-colonial. But when I talk to them about the kinds of politics that they engage in, they will often draw on stories from slavery and, and associate their struggles 
against the police following their child or family relative being killed by the police as not dissimilar to the mothers who struggled against their children being sold into slavery during the period of chattel enslavement in the Caribbean. Or others might talk about the importance of women leading campaigns and the, and the strength that is necessary for black women to not simply survive but to thrive and to resist in a society in which they experience the oppressions of capitalism, racism and patriarchy. But because of the, I think this diversity of political opinions and political persuasions and political perspectives and experiences among these women, I think it's really important for us not to consider these black women to all have the same experience, the same political position and the same political motives. And I think it's important for us to appreciate the diversity among these black women engaged in these very, very similar struggles. And I think it's important not only because these different perspectives are all valid and important, but also I think it's important for us to understand that there's a strength in that diversity. There's a strength in that differing of perspectives and there's a strength in that differing of political avenues to resistance, where some might take more of an educational approach, you know, running youth projects with our young people. Others might be making demands outside parliament and leading protests and others might be writing books and doing media work and doing intellectual work and all of those different types of resistance I think are vitally important if we're going to have a broad-based struggle against the state and its violence. Does the movement against police violence in Britain recognize itself as being women-led? This research that I carried out was originally for my PhD. So I carried out about 40 to 50 interviews and every single person I interviewed I asked them that question have you noticed that almost every one of these campaigns against a black death at the hands of the police is led by a woman and, and why do you think that is um, everyone I interviewed said they had noticed that this was the case almost everyone gave a different reason as to why they thought it was the case um, a lot of the men I interviewed said this was simply how it has always been and you know sometimes gave slightly cliched appraisals of how women are always the backbone of the movement and, and those types of things. So it is certainly something that people have noticed and I think it would be difficult for people not to notice because so many of our, our anti-racist struggles are often dominated by men and so it, there is quite a clear difference and a distinction there but at the same time I think that the way in which people interpret that leadership of women is very very different depending on who it is you speak to. I think what's really important and really urgent at the moment, both in Britain and the United States, is the fact that not only are many of these women leading campaigns against specific cases in which the police have killed or maimed someone, a loved one, but they're also engaging in struggles against criminalisation. So also engaged in struggles in which the young people in their families or in their communities have been sent to prison, often for a serious offence. And so breaking down that barrier between the quote-unquote innocent person who's been killed by the police and the quote-unquote guilty person, the person who's been found guilty in court and sentenced to long-term incarceration, breaking down that divide between the so-called innocent and the so-called guilty is also something many of these women are doing as well. So there's an emergent campaign in Britain challenging the uh, incarceration of young men and boys as young as 16 or 17 who have been given over a decade in prison for different offences and challenging the ways in which the young people in our community are being criminalised, not simply through the so-called innocent people being victims of police violence, but also those that the courts have deemed guilty facing the violence of incarceration. That was Adam Elliot Cooper speaking from London. 
Delbert Africa, the last of the surviving Move 9 defendants to be released from prison in the 1978 death of a Philadelphia policeman, is coming to New York City to celebrate the end of his 42-year-long ordeal. Among those who will be welcoming Delbert Africa and his Move political family is Gwen DeBrow of the campaign to bring another political prisoner, Mumia Abu-Jamal, home. Thank God Delbert is out. Delbert or Africa is out of prison after spending almost 42 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. And seven of the other Move members are out of prison, thank God, and they're out because of a people's mobilization to get them out because we believed that they should have never went to prison in the first place because they did not kill Officer James Ramp on August 8, 1978. It was a police officer who killed Officer Ramp because physically they were in the basement full of water and there was no way that they could have killed the police officer because they didn't even have any weapons in the basement. They found themselves in an untenable situation having to deal with the police siege and attack on their family. There was supposed to be, the police said they were coming there to evict them, but really what they wanted to do was kill them. That's what their true intention was. In fact, as Delbert was coming out of his home, Half naked, the police attacked him with a with a helmet, beat him in the face with a helmet, and with the butt of, of a gun. It just was an awful, awful scene, and they could have did something other than what they did. But their intent was to kill them because they saw them as terrorists. And two of the Move 9 never got out of prison. Unfortunately not, yes. We lost Merle Africa in March of 1998, and we, we lost Phil Africa in January uh, 2015 under very suspicious circumstances. We still don't know what caused their death. You know, they were in prison, and, you know, as we know, they were very uh, healthy people, and all of a sudden, you know, they were complaining of a stomachache. They went to the hospital, and when they got back to the prison, they just suddenly died. So what Unfortunately, yes, they, uh, we lost them. And again, they should have never been in prison in the first place because they never killed the cop. It was a frame. They were convicted of third-degree murder and in a corrupt criminal justice system. Even the judge later said to Mumia and to the audience that was listening on a, on a radio show that he had no idea who killed Officer James Ramp, yet he sentenced them to third-degree murder murder charges. He sentenced them all to prison, and basically his reasoning for that was because they say they're a family. He said, we're going to sentence you as a family. That was his reasoning. And of course, the Move family was devastated by the arrest of the Move 9, but the police were still unrelenting. And a few years later, in the 1980s, an unspeakable crime was committed against Move. Yes, again, they came purportedly to evict them, and an eviction turned into an all-out assault on defenseless men and women and children and, and animals. On May 13, 1985, the police came armed with 
bulldozers and unrelenting amount of firearms. And when they realized that they were not going to come out of the home, they proceeded to drop a bomb on a house, destroying that home and 61 other homes and killing 11 people, five of them children, and one of them, Delbert's daughter, 13-year-old daughter, who was killed. And that was under the auspices of Philadelphia's black mayor, Wilson Good. Wilson, we call him Wilson No Good because he called them terrorists and they could have figured out some other way. There had to be another way of getting these people out of the home other than firebombing it and killing 11 people and then destroying a black neighborhood. They would have never done that to a white family. It hasn't been done to a white family. And now, after two generations of incarceration, the Move 9 are out of prison. So what are folks doing to celebrate and further agitate? Well, Delbert Africa is coming to New York. This will be his first trip to New York, to the Big Apple. And we want to show our appreciation and love for what this 73-year-old man has gone through I believe Janet and Janine Africa and Carlos Africa will be joining him in their trip, and we're planning a reception for them at Holy Rod Episcopal Church in Washington Heights. And that's going to be on March 14th, which is a Saturday, at the Holy Rod Episcopal Church, and the address is 715 West 179th Street, and you can take the A train to 181st Street. And we will have refreshments and welcome them and hear from them. Let them tell their own stories and also celebrate this victory of finally getting them out after 42 years, almost 42 years of wrongful incarceration. As a matter of fact, they were supposed to be granted parole 10 years earlier, but they weren't. But due to political pressure and a courageous lawyer who took up their case, and put together a parole package for them. We were finally able to um, attain their freedom thanks to Brad Thompson from the People's Law Project in Chicago. But it took a tremendous amount of work, and thank God they're free and on a move, just like we are, just like what we do. I'm an organizer for the campaign to bring Mumia home, and we're working hard to attain his freedom because he's also basically a political prisoner and was charged, convicted for the death of a police officer on December 9th, wrongfully. But even 40-plus years of the most intense police repression hasn't broken the Move family. That's correct. They're stronger than ever and committed revolutionaries to the liberation of all forms of life, animal and otherwise. You know, they're our modern-day... Basically, 1972, people weren't talking about the environment, but they were. They were advocating for clean water and clean air and liberation of animals, that we shouldn't be housing them in zoos and circuits for our pleasure. They should be liberated, as all life forms should be. Yes, some people have even described MOVE as flower children with an African twist, but the police saw something different. They saw a threat to their way of life. That's basically what it boils down to. They saw a threat to their way of life because they were also protesting police brutality. And we're still protesting police brutality. 
black people have been enduring police brutality ever since we were enslaved 400 years ago, and we're still dealing with it. And it's even more perverse, I would say. It's the same old, same old, and police wreak havoc in our community daily. That was Gwen DeBrow speaking from New York City. Books I Teach is a regular feature of Black Agenda Report, organized by Bar Book Forum editor Roberto Servent. Bokeh Shah Isi is a Ph.D. candidate at the University of California at San Diego. She exposes her students to a full range of books on subjects from black feminist thoughts to political economy. We asked Shah Isi if her students arrived at her class with a comprehensive understanding of chattel slavery in the United States? I mean, I think that depends on a variety of factors. So I teach in an ethnic studies program in which the students are often in a variety of disciplines. So some students may be coming with a richer understanding than others. But largely, I think students' understanding of chattel slavery in particular is very flattened. Um, And by this, I mean it is often reductive and produces an idea of enslavement as one, a completely uh, historical fact, and two, a system, an economic system that somehow valued Black peoples, African-descended peoples, as valuable in a labor sense, in market sense. And so this text really reveals the way that on the one hand, you could think of enslavement as simply an economic process, but on the other hand, it was so much more complicated, so much more brutal than often students are taught, if they're taught at all. In particular, there's a contradiction for the enslaver in terms of his female slaves, who were both workers and producers of new workers, that is, new slave capital. Yes. And so I think that particular detail really highlights how Labor's body in particular was conceived of as nothing more than a commodity. And so plenty of scholars of enslavement in various spaces in the Americas point to this argument that commodification and dehumanization was a central process of the production of the slave by enslavers. And it's a commodification of human beings. And so thinking about how reproduction played into this, thinking about the lack of care for reproductive bodies creates a way to see this process of breeding, because that's what it was, in a way that is not different or not too different from the production of physical commodities in the present day. And that, I would argue, changes the perception of what chattel slavery really is, which is a commodification process of human beings, moreover than simply an economic system. I would expect that many students have not thought of slavery, of plantations, as being breeding places for people. That's usually one of the things that I think students are shocked about, and that's something I tried to talk about uh, with a disclaimer. Um, So thinking about the centrality of sexual violence to the practice, I think that definitely, I would argue or hope to believe, brings a clearer sense of the violence that were produced. Second on your list, but I'm sure that this is an author that you deal with often, is a book by Bell Hooks, Where We Stand, Class Matters. And you focus attention on a particular chapter whose title is Being Rich. Yes, I do. 
So I've focused on this chapter in particular because I have taught it in classes before. And I think it's a very interesting way to complicate the way that we look about economic inequality, that being uh, looking up at wealth inequality. I think especially currently that's a conversation that's being happened or that is happening on a national level. When thinking about the consolidation of wealth, uh, thinking about the billionaire class, uh, thinking about all of the ethical dilemmas that that produces. And so this particular chapter is a very comfortable read for university students more broadly, and it really elucidates this fact that there is an inherent contradiction to social wealth inequality that is gleaned over and largely through mediated depictions of folks as well. You say it's a comfortable read, but I'm sure that it doesn't make the students comfortable. Mm, That's a great point. I would argue that the reception that I got in one of the classes that I taught it in was fairly welcoming. As so it was contextualized with contemporary examples. But I think, as Bell Hooks is arguing, is that class becomes this taboo subject that is not often talked about, a lot of the times very hush-hush, arguably speaking more so in wealthier textures of society. And so this chapter really kind of breaks both the ideological underpinnings of why wealth is constructed as something to ascribe to, rather than as an indication of the inherent unequal status within capitalism. Well, yes, the prevailing social order is not commonly referred to as racial capitalism. Precisely. I think that is a misgiving that has everything to do with racial construction, construction of whiteness, and to somehow separate the two is, or does a disservice to just modes of analysis and politics more broadly, but in particular, I think thing books like Labor and Women, for instance, I think books that recognize the centrality of racial subordination and racial formation and the violences that that inflicts understands that racism and racial caste systems are an inherent part of capitalist systems. Yes, and systems produce lots of things, including knowledge. And you say that this book shines a very clear light on knowledge production and whose knowledge counts as worthwhile and whose knowledge is not considered worthy. Yes, absolutely. I think particularly within the humanities, there is a tendency for academic texts, for instance, to be very full of jargon. And so... Students in particular are often reading texts that are very dense and sometimes necessarily so, but this text is very clear uh, and spoken in colloquial language and that the opportunity to have a critical conversation about what is allowed and thought of as legitimate within academic conversations and also how that trickles down to other spaces as well and whose truths can be told, particularly in a discipline where the impetus for Black studies, for ethnic studies, for thinking critically about race, gender, sexuality, was coming out of a need to have a different way, a humane way, a truthful way, really, to be a writing about histories and writing about contemporary histories as well. Another of your favorite books, Aberrations in Black Towards a Queer of Color Critique by Roderick Ferguson. What's a queer of color critique? That's a great question. Thank you. So a queer of critique is essentially a way to think about intersectionality and the ways in which, on the one hand, identities are interwoven and cannot be separated, but on the other hand, how 
those identities are weaponized by kind of normative dominant powers in order to further marginalize, multiply marginalize. And so in Ferguson's text in particular, the author looks at the Moynihan Report being a report that essentially demonized Black family structures and it attempted to study them in this fallaciously objective way. But at the heart of that really was this focus on heteronormative ways of being, which are also very much tied to capitalism. And so the critique is that this idea that somehow kinship networks that are not uh, in the form of a kind of middle-class nuclear family are somehow in deficit. And the idea that the only way that you can think of a family is in a heterosexual coupling, monogamous coupling, is an example of the way that heteronormative thoughts and practices are like legislated into practice and how they are used to, for instance, mete out differential treatment, perpetuate economic inequality, and also really how both women and queer folks are pathologized within that logic. Now, you don't just hand out books and say, come read them and come back and tell us what you think. You use other media to get your point across or to highlight the author's points. Yes, I do. And so uh, with that text in particular, I think it's really interesting to think about or show rather make the connections with mainstream media and how these ideas of, for instance, the uh, property owning middle class family becomes a central component of perceived success within black communities. Um, And so we can see this with family sitcoms such as Fresh Prince and currently Blackish and how this idea, the singular idea of racial progress is produced through the idea of a normative family structure and through ideas of wealth accumulation as well. Angela Davis's book, Are Prisons Obsolete? That's a very important work. And Davis is, of course, an icon of the prison abolition movement. But you say her work also points up the need for an intersectional analysis. Yes, absolutely. I think in a variety of her work, she centralizes the role of an intersectional analysis as it relates to incarceration, but more broadly as well. And so in her text, Our Prisons Absolute, she argues that incarceration is a multifaceted form of structural violence. It's a form of racial violence, gender violence, disability violence, queer violence. And we can see that the overrepresentation, which is a framework that is contested, of marginalized folks within prisons really speaks to the fact that society at large isn't functioning in any type of healthy way. And so incarceration in this way is revealed to be essentially a very profitable band-aid solution at best and a form of continued structural violence and racial subjugation more broadly. I would think that this book and Angela Davis being a kind of celebrity would engender lots of lively discussion among students who think they know the subject. I have been lucky to encounter students that are kind of new to understanding all of the messed up things about incarceration, but I've definitely had heated conversations specifically about uh, mediated depictions of incarceration, how they may differ from the -the on-the-ground experiences that incarceration produces. And many of these students may have seen, or you might ask them to look at, Ava DuVernay's movie, The 13th. Yes. And so I feel like that film is a great, great introduction 
force students into thinking about the both the current status of mass incarceration and what it is being expanded and propelled by, but also the historical continuities of incarceration as a byproduct, if not continuum, of child slavery. On the one hand, and on the other hand, the film in particular is focused on incarceration of men and largely adult men. So thinking about all the vectors that change what that film or any type of depiction of incarceration would look like, such as gender, sexuality, class, and age as well, is a way to think about how it may look different and also the particularities of those experiences. In reading your piece, you piqued my curiosity, especially with your examination of Christina Sharp's book, In the Wake, on Blackness and Being. And you talked about Mm -hmm. her use of the tactic of redaction. What is Mm -hmm. redaction and how is it used in classroom work? So redaction is a practice of taking out particular forms of information. So have it being particular words in a legislative document or cropping in pictures, and I would argue in film as well. And so in the context of the text and in classrooms as well, redaction, particularly when talking about violence on Black folks and the mediation of violence, it's really important to recognize that the reproduction of those images are violent in and of themselves. And so a practice of redaction on a pictorial level, for instance, can look like looking at a scene of death and not showing a body, for instance, but maybe examining the other aspects of it that still, if not make a better picture because the shock value, uh, the dehumanizing shock value is not there. In terms of a classroom setting, think about newspapers, stories that are written uh, or reported stories that are written that are inherently produced through the lens of corporate white supremacist media uh, structure. And so in crossing out, for instance, stereotypical descriptions uh, or descriptions that vilify or pathologize Black folks in particular uh, is a way to read stories, both critically and with the hopes and aims of recuperating Black humanity. Yes, in terms of redaction, one way to do that, and you pointed out in your piece, is to black out or obscure the body of the black victim of a lynching, the body hanging Mm -hmm. from a tree, and show Mm -hmm. only the white folks who lynched the person, and how that forces the viewer to examine the perpetrators of this crime. Absolutely. I think it's a kind of a vision-based way of not using the passive tense. And so it's a way of highlighting these particular social actors that did a specific thing. And so kind of going back to that normative ideas of history of anti-Black violence in this country and what is taught is often passive, that somebody was lynched. No, somebody lynched someone and people came to view it. And it was a pleasurable activity and it was a spectacle. And so that kind of process of redaction allows for those facts to be really gleaned. Yes, and students are forced to take an extended look at people, if they're Mm -hmm. white, who look much like them, much like their parents and grandparents. Absolutely. I think it also speaks volumes about the history of whiteness in this country um, and the way that that critique of racialization is not even a concept um, oftentimes. And that that way of thinking about race in particular, that looking up 
looking at the power structures can be very uncomfortable in those class settings, but I think is all the more necessary and crucial. I'll ask you a real simple question. Do you think it's Mm -hmm. hard to teach young people these days that somehow they are resistant to being taught? That definitely depends on the student body being taught. I have excellent students who are very engaged with the material, some majors who, you know, ask for more material and ask for extra readings that they want to do because they see themselves in, you know, the way these stories are being taught and the the, uh, different way that they're encountering knowledge that they might not in other settings. I do think that there are some folks who are resistant to seeing themselves as somehow responsible for reproducing racial violence, whether that be via speech, image, et cetera. And that is usually when it becomes uncomfortable. I think that usually is when it's poking at someone's privilege and then making it evident that it's there, whether that be through race, through gender, through sexuality, et cetera. Have you ever found that works that you wanted to make a focus of your courses were frowned upon by your superiors at the institution? No, actually, I have been lucky because I am in a department that is centralizing race and racial formation as the entire purpose or content material of the work. And so in that respect, I have not, I have been lucky to, but I think institutionally speaking, there are a variety of pushbacks, I'm sure, to the material being taught. For instance, I'm in a nursing studies department, and so There's been multiple cases of shutting down ethnic studies classes in high schools in different parts of the country because of just that. But I do realize that teaching while Black is a very interesting experience, particularly in such an anti-Black institution. And so the microaggressions that I've experienced in the classroom, in reading student material, is definitely something that I see as a stressful factor of the job, however rewarding it is in other ways. And so I I always think that's interesting, giving the context of what I am teaching and how perhaps, or just how consistent it is as a practice, having honestly racist material being submitted to me. So there's always that. Who's submitting that material to you? Students. So I think, and I think that 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 speaks of a broader issue within education systems about anti-Blackness and just more broadly critical race understanding not being taught is that it's reflected in the work sometimes. And so whether intent is never the question in terms of the subject matter being handed in by students, but rather just the kind of discourses that are reproduced in student work is particularly at times anti-Black. That was Bokeh Shaisi speaking from San Diego, California. Another contributor to Barr's Books I Teach feature is Tiana Reed. She's a Ph.D. candidate in English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University, where Reed conducts research in Black Studies, Marxism, and Feminism. Reed says she finds it useful to expose students to books about the appearance of the so-called New Negro, of the 1930s. I definitely come to the New Negro with a little bit more softness perhaps than my students. But that's what I find so wonderful is that my students really push me to think radically about the text, which when I first read the text, I was right there with them. 
And this was also an assigned text. And I think the being in that position where you have to read a text is a kind of good place to be because you're battling with it. And the scene of that teaching moment, which I discuss in the piece, was really critical because there was a white professor. There were several Black students in the class, but I was the only Black TA. And here I am sort of performing this troubled figure of the new Negro, which is like, yeah, there's always a new Negro. And I wanted to really break that open, but also say, well, what can we learn from this rights-bearing citizen, which from this perspective of 20, at the time it was 2018, but even today, you know, all of this attempt to form this citizen of the Negro, you know, what has that done for us? And how is this text so liberal and pathological in its liberalness? And why are we even reading it today? You know, I think sometimes teachers take for granted that we just read the books that we read. But really, why are we reading this? And what good is it doing us? Well, what does one learn from Elaine Locke's New Negro piece? I think we can really see the way that bourgeois respectability is formed. So we often talk about and know, you know, in left circles, the pitfalls of respectability, but really like reading this huge text, a collection of poems, articles, bibliographies, seeing how it was put together and how there are differing perspectives from within the text and how they kind of battle each other. And then, but then we have, you know, Zora Neale Hurston, we have texts that kind of contradict some of the Elaine Locke perspective in a certain sense, because they're really trying to represent a black vernacular. They're trying to represent a different way of being a kind of Southern approach. Well, did you get the impression that your students could construct a new Negro that reflects their contemporary generation. What I think is so exciting about the students that I teach is that they are not concerned with creating anything sort of new. They're much more interested in history and politics of the past and learning from them than in just novelty for novelty's sake. I mean, don't get me wrong, they're very kind of involved in the politics on campus, in the politics from where they're from, but they're not, you know, I think when I was in college, I was much more concerned with, yeah, creating, at at my time, it was like creating a new kind of version of what it means to be Black. And I think the students today are not at all considered, they don't consider that a priority. And they're much concerned with what are the new forms of politics that we might be able to work on. And that's that's exciting to watch. Could it be that they are now so secure in themselves that they see no need to recreate Black people? Perhaps. I mean, I, would, I, I guess I would hope so. And I think the insecurities come from other things. The insecurities don't come from Blackness, they come from, you know, material insecurities, economic precarity, debt, you know, access to health care. And so their insecurity isn't so based only on the kind of theoretical level, if that, if that makes sense. 
You take a look at Intozake Shange's For Colored Girls, and you say that you went to see a performance at the New York Public Theater, but you learned more about the piece from the book clubs that you'd attended. Yeah, you know, I really, I'm, a, I'm obviously a big reader. I love spending time alone, and I love reading alone, but the times when I'm really pushed and challenge is when I'm reading collectively. And whether that's a reading group, a classroom where I'm the teacher, a classroom where I'm the student, or in this case, a book club. And what's interesting about Antozaki Shange's choreo poem is that the very form of it has multiple perspectives and multiple voices, right? It's kind of um, heterogeneous in that way. And so you would think that I'm kind of, you would think that the performance of the play would allow me to get, you know, that kind of polyvocality. But really, it was just reading plainly and simply with undergraduates that I was able to learn, you know, what is a choreo poem? And how would you perform that? And I think when you see something in its polished version on stage at like a fancy New York theater, you're not seeing all of the kind of edges that you get to see when you're reading a text with other people who you don't necessarily agree with. Yeah, I mean, it was a beautiful performance, but I was also sort of let down. It was the first time I had seen Four Colored Girls performed, actually. and yeah, there was this weird feeling of disappointment that it just kind of didn't live up to the text I had so intimately read for years. We at Black Agenda Report are people of the left, so we're really interested in learning how your class felt, uh, how they reacted, and how they performed when you assigned them to read Volume 1 of Karl Marx's <laughs> Capital. <laughs> I mean, I think as a leftist also, I think I'm constantly trying to sneak in texts that don't necessarily fit with the theme. Like this was an English class for the English major. And I think, you know, some students were, no one had a kind of issue with it at all. But, you know, of course, I was the instructor of record, so that might have not come across. But the thing about Capital Volume 1 and about Marx in general is that everyone thinks they know what Marxism is. Unless you kind of seriously study Marx and Marxism, you kind of are like, oh, yeah, I know what that is. And I think that was kind of interesting to watch because when we're reading something that is discussing this thing that gets circulated in undergrad in college around commodity fetishism and we're actually going through it slowly it kind of allowed the students to look at things differently and i think some some folks were surprised and excited in ways that they hadn't quite expected well you assigned them to read the chapter on the fetishism of commodities and the secret thereof. Did they think you were playing a joke on them? <laughs> well, I think they 
they were confused, you know, I think they were confused because this is a literature class. But I think it was a challenge to both discuss the ideas around capital moving into capitalism, which is like, you know, the beginning of volume one is so interesting because it starts like very small, thinking about the kernel and and the, the commodity. And then you sort of grow to see how that can that becomes capitalism, right? Um, but they were, I think, surprised. And Marx uses such beautiful language. I, you know, I am a literary critic, so I'm not only reading for, you know, what is Marx's theory of the commodity? What is his theory of exploitation? What is his theory of value? But I'm also reading for, well, why does he evoke a vampire here? Why does he evoke a monster here? Why does he bring up Robinson Crusoe. And there are all these sort of like literary ways to read it, which I actually don't think blunt the more radical political reading. I think we can read them in tandem. Yes, of course, Marx was not a professor. He had been a journalist and then became an organizer. Mm -hmm. And most people who read Marx uh, do so in coordination, conjunction with their political activities. But you want folks to appreciate the book, even Capital, as a book, whatever the state of revolution. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. And... I think that that might invite, I would hope that that might invite some of the students who had dismissed Marx in the past to kind of approach Marx anew. Because, you know, that's really one of the ways that I continue to get excited over reading Marx is in a political setting, but also the kind of quieter study that I do where I'm really thinking about Marx's decisions, his language decisions, how how I'm sort of personally like affected by the images that he brings up. And I think that is those are political decisions. I really want to say that I was so thrilled to be asked to write this column and why is because, you know, Black Agenda Report understands teaching as something that happens outside of the classroom. And I think that we often think of the classroom and teaching as this inherently radical space, this space of social justice. Meanwhile, teachers often don't make a living wage. Students get arrested in their classroom. Parents get spied on. You know, universities and schools are often violent institutions. And I think that I really loved, and I tried to do this in the piece of how teaching happens, you know, as you say, on someone's front porch or within my own family, as I was talking about with my dad, because I think a lot of people have very fraught experiences with the classroom. You know, I often felt the classroom hasn't been a space where I felt comfortable, and that's probably part of the reason why I continue to show up day after day is that possibility that things could be otherwise. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.